Education, Leadership, and Beyond, Surviving and Thriving. My name is Andrew Marotta, host of the show, and it is show number 226. Happy Tuesday. Happy October to you. Thanks for tuning in live here on Facebook. Proud member of the Education Podcast Network, Voice Ed Radio Canada, wherever you are taking in your uh, podcast, iTunes, we appreciate you. If you're watching live today, jump in with a question or comment for me and our esteemed guest today. You never know who you're going to meet in your travels. Um, people come across our lives maybe for different reasons. And uh, I was so fortunate to be at the same venue with Mike Mason. Mike Mason was the keynote speaker this past summer at KASA, uh, the Kentucky School Administrators Association, and Mike was the keynote speaker, and Mike was fantastic. He's a former Marine. Well, I guess you're not former, Mike. I don't want to misspeak, but you're always a Marine. He was a Marine. He's a retired FBI. He is a retired chief of security at Verizon. He's been a volunteer bus driver, and he is an author, which we're going to talk a lot about his book today, Working in America, Mike Mason. So we're going to meet Michael here in a minute. I do want to take a moment to uh, thank today's sponsor, Particle Men's Cream. I'll be sending Mike uh, some, uh, some of that product, Particle Men's Cream, Particle Men's Products. Amorata 20 is your discount code. A-M-A-R-O-T-T-A. 20 is your discount code for 20% off. If you're a man, if you're a presenter, uh, if you're a professional, it, the stuff is fantastic. I got some stuff for my hair, some stuff for my face. Uh, they got vitamins. They got all kinds of stuff. But I'm going to send Mike the uh, uh, the cream and make his even beautiful face even more uh, beautiful. So, uh, Mike, we'll get that to you. Let's get rolling today. Show number 226. People and points of influence in our life. Times in our life where we turn, something happens and it kind of puts us on a course to some different things. And Mike shares so many of those stories in his book about when and the people who did that in his life, something more to happen and what changes. And now, right, I'm on the other side here as an adult, as a, as a, a principal, as an educator, as a leader. I feel that I can have those points of influence on other people, things that I can do, say or do to impact other people's lives. And Mike shares so much about the community of the people who raised them and a lot about his father. Uh, again, in the story here, working in America. And who are those people in your life and who are you doing that for? Regardless of your position, regardless of your age, we can be those people to impact the lives of those people we serve. So I challenge you to find those moments in your life about where and when and who you can impact. So, and uh, Mike's had an impact on me, even in the short time we've known one another, we've exchanged books and uh, enough about me talking here. Let's bring Mike into the show. Here he is all the way from Virginia. Mike, welcome to uh, Education Leadership Beyond. Hey, Andrew, uh, thanks very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate the kind words prior to bringing me on. Absolutely. And they're well-deserved, Mike. 
you have had a full career and you're still moving full steam ahead. Um, so, Mike, a brief introduction. We're going to get to know you here, but I mentioned a few things. But let's introduce yourself to our listening audience. Right. Well, I was born and raised in the south side of Chicago, primarily by a single father. But I really feel like I was raised by a village. And it is to that village that that book is really an homage to. And one thing I wanted to tell your listeners, the subtitle of the book is it's working in America, but spectator or gladiator, you decide. And what I'm really trying to tell people is that, you know, we only go through this thing one time. I don't want to say you only live once. You live every day. We only die once. And uh, what I try to do is, it, because of the village that raised me and all the influential people who touched me, I've tried to give that back my whole life. You can't pay anybody back. All you can do is pay it forward. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book. That's what I try to do in my, in my motivational uh, engagements. And that's what I try to do in general. But then after, after you know, growing up on the south side of Chicago, I went to, uh, I graduated high school, went to Illinois Wesleyan University down in Bloomington, Illinois. I was, a, I majored in accounting, got my degree in that. Uh, right after, on the same day I graduated, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. Wow. Eventually left the Marines as a captain. Then I joined the FBI and I worked um, all kinds of crimes, general crimes, kidnappings. My, my best case was returning a child back to her mother. I mean, I'll never forget that. And I was only in the bureau for 14 months. And I knew, I knew I'd hit one of the highlights of my career wow. in 14 months. I was almost disappointed, but um, not by the return of the child, I might add. <laughs> and then I went from there, I ascended the leadership ladder and eventually retired from the bureau as an executive assistant director. And just for context for your listeners, that was fourth on the FBI's food chain. I was responsible for the criminal cyber response and services branch. So about half of the FBI's operational resources fell under me. Then I went from there to Verizon, where I served as a the chief security officer and a senior vice president. And then that, that was a fantastic job. And then after that, uh, the first thing I did after I retired was I drove a school bus and I loved it. I drove special needs kids around uh, to and from a uh, special institution that dealt with highly autistic, severely autistic children. And that was another learning uh, education. That was another learning environment for me. Uh, one thing I tell people is uh, you got to constantly evolve through this life. And I don't intend to stop evolving until my heart stops beating. And then uh, now I'm driving, I'm, I'm a volunteer for the American Red Cross, and I drive blood products from the Red Cross lab in Richmond to regional hospitals around this part of Virginia. So I am just loving life. Wow, Mike. And, and you're doing the things that you're talking about, including when I met you. Uh, we were at an engagement together. I was looking for a volunteer and I got a room full of a couple hundred people and nobody's answering. And there was that lull like, oh, man. And you stepped up. You stepped up and you were you're one of the speakers and you came up and uh, uh, got involved and, and, and led the way. So uh, extremely impressed, Mike. Um, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Let's get started with the book, Mike. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what was your inspiration to say? I got to put this on paper. I got, I have a story to tell and I want to put it on paper and here it is working in America, spectator or gladiator. You decide, tell me your inspiration. There. Well, my inspiration was really, I've done mentoring my whole life 
And I've mentored so many people that I thought had the wrong ideas about so many different things. And as I would try to put them on a steady course and a, and a correct course, a lot of them said, hey, you should really write a book. You should tell more people about this. So my inspiration was to try to do for a lot of other people what so many people have already done for me. And so it, it's not an act of arrogance so much as it is an act of, of again, paying it forward, feeling like I had something to tell people, I had something to offer, and feeling like the book was probably the best way to do it. And so my, my inspiration came from all the people I mentored. And one thing I'd say about mentoring, you said something in the opening about, you know, what are you doing for people today? And it's so important uh, to be a mentor. And it's so important for young people to seek mentors, not just young people. I've mentored people who were who were in their 50s. But this is the way to me that I'm paying it forward. So my motivation, my inspiration was to get my message out to a larger universe of people. Well, and you're doing that in so many ways, the speaking, the book. Uh, and I'll start with one of the stories early in the book. You mentioned about uh, so many experiences with your dad, uh, but you told the story about wanting to get braces. And your father said, you know, you let's go see how much they cost. And then that number came out and, and you had to produce a third of that, correct? That's right. Well, he actually told me before we knew the price, he said, whatever the orthodontist says, we can't, we won't start until you give me a third of that. Yeah. Uh, and I said, okay. And here's where ignorance is bliss sometimes. Had I known how much money I was going to have to come up with, I may have been frustrated. I may have said, no, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. But when we were in the orthodontist office and he said $2,100 and my father looked at me without an ounce of embarrassment, I might add, and told his 13-year-old son, when you give me $700, now this is 1972. He says, when you, if you can give me $700, we can start. No idea where I was going to get $700 from, but I worked my butt off for four months, was fortunate enough to get a job uh, with the city that at that time, I was 14 years old. At that time, as you, if you were 14, you could get the job. $2 an hour, 80, 40 hours a week, $80 a week. And um, I saved 95% of that. And at the end of the summer, between that, cutting lawns, cleaning garages, things like that, I gave my father $700 in a White Owl cigar box. Wow. And I love it that we live in such an instant society now, credit cards, but you know, that it, he wouldn't even start it until you handed it to him. That's right. It was, he, he didn't, he was, I wasn't going to owe him anything. He was, he said, when you give me $700, we can start. And uh, my teeth were all over the place. So I felt like I got to get this $700 somehow. And I'm too little to rob a bank, so I figured I needed to do something honest. So, Mike, share. I know that story had a deep impact on you as a as a grown man. Now, as you, you're a father. You know what lessons did you take away from that experience? Well, you know, before that story with my father, when I was six years old, and until I left the house, whenever my father thought I was whining about something, he would say, "Boy, let me tell you something. The world owes you nothing." nothing. And, and that really, now some people may think that's cruel, but that provided me with an armor that stays with me even today. Uh, the fact of the matter is the world doesn't owe you anything. And if you start with a clean slate, it's hard to be disappointed. So when my father said, when you give me $700, 
Andrew, I didn't even think it was bizarre. I mean, I, if I had had a little study group, I would have found out how bizarre it was. But I didn't even think it was bizarre. I just thought, okay, that's the deal. That's and the way it I is. just went, I went about it to, to satisfy my end of the deal. And you make it sound so simple, right? And and your father is wise beyond his years because we do too much for our children. Now we go above and beyond. And and here, that's almost a necessity, but he made you earn part of it. And, and God, what a, what a great story. Um, and the book, Mike, really kudos. So many great stories, these lessons. And one of them that really stuck with me um, was about Carol. Uh, oh, yeah. who's, a good, who's a good friend of yours, Yes, uh, a woman of color in the FBI, and you went to borrow a chair from her office, and she smiled at you and then said, you know, you're not taking my chair. T right. Tell us the rest of that story and what you learned from that experience. Well, what I learned, you know, we, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a, is a big subject today. It's a topic in companies, companies hire chief diversity officers, things like that. But it has so much more to do with than just race and gender. Most people, when they hear that, they think white and black. It's, yeah. it's that limited. But it's so much more than that. I was a drug undercover, and I was doing a takedown. And so I had state police, local police, FBI agents, DEA agents in a back conference room. But I didn't have enough chairs. So I came out to borrow Carol's. I started to pull her chair away. She pulled it back. She's smiling the whole time. She said, no. You can't borrow my chair. And I said, Carol, what's wrong? She said, if you can't use me, you can't use my chair. She said, this is the fourth or fifth operation where you've been the undercover. You've been the person designing the takedown. She said, I was a Baltimore cop for six years before I joined the FBI. I worked in some of the worst neighborhoods in Baltimore and in some of the worst neighborhoods in America. And she said, I probably have more hands-on arrests than 85% of the men back there. And she said, and yet you have never asked for my assistance in any of these arrests. So she reiterated, smiling all the time. If you can't use me, you can't use my chair. And of course, I told her to take her chair back there and for her to sit in it. And I wish that's where it ended, Andrew, but it was much bigger than that. For months after that, I thought, how could, I mean, Carol was one of three black agents, me being the other one. So we were two thirds of the black agents in that division. And yet somehow I didn't see Carol because when asked why I did that to Carol, the point I always make to audiences is that I didn't do it to her. Do it. Yeah. The effect was still the same, though, until she called me on it. So the lesson to be drawn for bosses is when you think you're all inclusive, when you think you're thinking about everybody, give yourself a test. Are you thinking about that person who works midnight to eight? Are you thinking about that person who only works Saturday and Sundays when you're thinking about promotions or favorable transfers or whatever? Carol, I'm so glad that that episode in my life happened when I was 27 and not when I was 37 or 47 or 57. Carol sh helped to shape a significant part of the leader I was to become. It, it's no less than that. I thought about that for months and months. And then what it did to me as a leader is I made sure when we were promoting people, I made sure that we thought about everybody, not just those right in front of us, but those working remotely, just everybody. But it shows how you can be exclusive without malice aforethought. And, it, and the, the lesson for not just women, but for everybody, when you think your boss is doing something that disadvantages you or they're not treating you fairly, first don't assume bad. 
First, don't assume that they're doing it intentionally. And then second, you've got to advocate for yourself. Carol was tired of being treated like a second class agent. And she said, I'm not doing this anymore. And so she fought back and she fought back successfully. And what an impact on you. And you, you, you absorb these stories. You learn from it. Did you know at the time how impactful that was going to be to you? Did you did, was that like a you heard the noise like tingling in the background? Like, wow, I learned from this. That was a wake up call, Andrew, because I, I said when she finished her little lecture to me, that five minute little lecture, uh, I realized she'd gotten me right between the running lights. Uh, and I had no I had no defensible response, nor did I try to find one. I mean, if I'm going to say something good about me that I would challenge all bosses and I wasn't even her boss at the time. I was just a, a peer agent. Um, but when you're hearing criticism like that, be big enough to to embrace it, be big enough to say, oh, my God, she's right. And so, yeah, I knew that that was a transformational that was a transformative moment. And I knew that because I thought about it for months afterwards. And here, 40 years later, I'm still talking about it. Well, not 40, but 35 years later, I'm still talking about it. Yeah. And people are still learning from it. Mike, in writing the book, you know, did you kind of put all these stories out there on a storyboard? Or how did you kind of organize your thoughts? Many people say, Andrew, you know, how, how do you write the book? How do you do it? So, like, did you have all of these stories and then you filled it in? How'd you, how'd you do it? About five years before I retired from Verizon, I'd been told so many times and encouraged to write a book. You know, I was, I guess, humble enough to think, do I have anything interesting to share with people? But then I started thinking about it and I started thinking about the stories are to are to make a larger point that typically the chapter is the point and the story is to make that point. And so I just started framing it. I started framing what would I title the chapters? What stories would I use in that chapter? And that's how I kind of put it together. I actually think it's a lot easier to write that type of book than, you know, the last book I read, which was a murder mystery. And I'm yeah. thinking, wow, how do they put that story together? How did they come up with those twists? So um, this was more of my life and its applicability to my life today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I agree with you, right? Those stories are real, they're yours. Uh, you don't want to say they're easy, but you, you have them. Another one I found so impactful, right? Nobody wants to tattle on the boss. Nobody wants to, you know, there's loyalty, right? You don't, right. you don't, kind of, you know, but in the Marines, you follow a code, right? You follow the rule. You know, tell me the story about Major Hunt uh, and his alcoholism and you as a, a lower ranking officer had to had to report him. Tell me that. Tell me about that. And then again, you know what he communicated to you afterwards. Sure. Well, the first thing people should know is Hunt is not his real last name. Yeah. It's the only place in the book where I didn't use real last names because I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody. But Major Hunt was an, was was a he was the uh, supply officer in the battalion. Um, he was a bad alcoholic and, and I felt badly because everybody in the battalion knew it, but nobody was doing anything about it. Well, he and I go out to the field, out to 29 Palms, California for a combined arms exercise. And, uh, he comes in riding in and I wasn't with him at this time, but he comes riding in on one of our armored vehicles and he's riding on top. He jumps off of it, kind of stumbles to the ground and in front of the Lieutenant colonels whose troops were supporting he is staggering drunk. Mm. So a flask falls out of his pocket and uh, two sergeants and a corporal, two of my finer, three of my finer NCOs 
bring the flask to me. And I said, where'd this come from? They said, Major Hunt's pocket. And they told me the story. Mm. So then they asked me, sir, what are you going to do with it? And that story, that question was loaded. It was loaded mainly with, I know what you'd be doing if it was a sergeant's pocket it fell out of. So I said, I'm taking it to the colonel when we get back to the rear. So when we got back to the rear, I went to see the colonel. Now, Major Hunt, for context, people should understand, he was the officer to whom I reported. He was the person who wrote my fitness report upon which one's career can be made or broken. Mm. I didn't know if he was the colonel's best friend. I didn't know if they had grown up together in the Marine Corps. I didn't know any of that. And I was a first lieutenant. I was one of three black officers in the entire battalion. And I was one of the junior officers in the battalion. But I went up and I and I told the colonel, sir, this is what happened. And I think this has to be addressed. And he said, thank you, Lieutenant Mason, dismiss me. Uh, the long and short of it is the major went to rehabilitation. It was his third time, usually you get one time. It was his third time. And then he was discharged from the Marine Corps. But he called me. This is an interesting part of the story. He called me the next day and he said, Lieutenant Mason, I need to talk to you, but I don't you don't need to say anything if you don't want to. He said uh, there were five other lieutenants out in the field, but I figure you were the only one who had the guts to actually turn me in for being drunk. He said, you probably saved my life. You probably saved my marriage, but this is not how I wanted my Marine Corps career to end, but that's on me. He said, you are a fine young officer, and I hope that you decide to make the Marine Corps a career instead of going to the FBI, because I had talked to him about that. He said, but I wish you the very best. And I said, sir, I wish you the very best in the challenges that lie ahead for you and your family. We said goodbye, and to this day, I never saw him again. But that was a story about accountability and about duty and about shattering the myth. See, I think I don't want to get ahead by not doing my job. If that's the way to get ahead, then I got to work in a different industry. Yeah. Because I don't want to do that. Well, the Marine Corps tells you nothing but about integrity, honesty, transparency, and having the moral courage to do the right thing. And in that instance, you know, I did the right thing and it wasn't easy. And, and walking away from that conversation, Mike, you, you, what, what was you feeling? I was feeling sad for him. I was yeah. feeling he had 15 and a half years. He was four and a half years away from a, you know, 50% of his salary retirement for the rest of his life. I felt sad for him, but he'd been, in, he'd been an alcoholic for a very, very long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, he was drunk sometimes at 930 in the morning. So I felt sorry for him. I really did. I didn't, I didn't worry so much about what the colonel would think about me. And the colonel had nothing but praise for me later. Um, but I, in that moment, I actually felt sorry for him. I didn't feel any trepidation. I didn't feel any fear or anything. I had done what I had to do. And I did what I did based on what he did. I didn't make it up. He made, he made that bed. Wow, Mike, those are such powerful stories, right? You're doing the right thing, even when it's not easy. But like you said, you make it sound easy because you just did what you were supposed to do. But that's that's hard for a lot of people. And kudos to you for having that strength, uh, Mike. And, and now you're doing so many good things to give back. You drew, you drove that special education bus last year. You're, you're volunteering now. Um, and you're speaking. You know, you're speaking to audiences. Tell me about preparing and and owning a room, right? You're a Marine. You're going to sp- speak to a group of Marines. They, 
they're going to listen, right? All right. Uh, an audience who's there at a conference is a little bit different. How do you how do you capture uh, your attention of your audiences, especially right? You're not an educator, so to speak. Right. Um, you know, speaking to educators, how do you capture your audience's hearts? Well, I'm sure as 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 you know, because you you do much of this of the same thing that I do. Uh, we all have our little um, idiosyncrasies that we like. For me, I never eat before I speak. Um, that's hard when you're when you're speaking at a at a dinner because it, maybe you haven't eaten all day. But I don't eat before I speak. One of the things I try to do is get a sense of the venue, get a sense of the room, the size of the stage. Then, most importantly. I try to understand who is my audience? What are the demographics of my audience? It's different if I'm talking to a room full of brand new teachers, or if I'm talking to a room full of teachers where the average tenure is 15 years. So I try to learn about my audience. Then I try to learn, are there any specific issues they're dealing with? And then finally, what's the theme of the conference? Uh, because I don't I don't just want people to clap at the end or say kind things to me if they see me, you know, in the cafeteria, or if they see me in the restaurant having, because what else are they going to say? Most of us are not going to be rude. I want people to have been touched by my words as I have been touched by so many speakers before me. So, and even now, it's not, it's not as though because I speak now, I'm not touched by anybody. I was touched by you. I loved your book and, uh, and read that thing in one sitting. <laughs> so, um, so the reality is my learning, I, I'm a student. When, when I'm up on stage, I feel like I'm the, um, you know, I'm the apple polisher of the teacher. She's just selected me to talk in front of the class. So I never assume any superiority air. And, and I try to own the audience by telling them where I have stumbled. And the Carol story is one that comes up often because, yeah, yeah I stumbled there. I, Carol was invisible to me for those more um, dangerous FBI missions. And she was having none of that, none of that. She is one of my heroes to this day because obviously she touched me in a way that continues to, I'm still telling that story. It's still a, it's still a key component of many of my presentations. And Mike, the content is great. Uh, and you're a big dude. I know you're not, you can't tell him that you're a big dude, you have presence. How do you go beyond the content uh, where your your mannerisms and things like that you do? Because you were funny, you were you were uh, enthused. You know, tell me about some of those those things you do to get the attention of the audience. Well, one thing you want to do is you definitely want to bring some energy. You know, I've had people stand up. I've listened to people speak who say, well, I want you to know. I, I couldn't be happier to be here. Well, it doesn't sound like it. Um, I want people to know every audience to me, Andrew, every audience is special to me. I don't think, oh, here we go again. Uh, I don't I don't think that. I don't think, okay, I got 45 minutes to do good. I got 60 minutes to do good. Uh, I don't think that at all. I, I think the audience is special. I want to connect with them. Um, if I may tell a quick story about the, the case engagement in Kentucky, I had a, a woman come up to me and, and part of my presentation is talking about how important every job is. No industry pays charity checks out uh, for people doing work that isn't important. It's mm -hmm. all necessary. She came up to me after I spoke, she's dabbing her eyes. Then she starts just full on crying and she says, may I hug you? And I said, sure. And she did and I said, what was that all about? 
she said, after she calmed down, she said, I drove a bus for 30 years. I retired two years ago, but I'm still a delegate with the organization. And she said, oh, actually, this, this was in California. Well, the California uh, group I spoke to, not CASA, because CASA didn't involve bus drivers. It was administrators. Anyway, uh, when I was in, when I spoke to the California Schools Employees Association, this bus driver came up to me crying. Then she hugged me. I said, what was that about? She said, your talk 30 minutes ago was the first time in 30 years anybody made me feel like what I did as a bus driver was important, that my work mattered. She said that was the first time. I was blown away by that. But that's what I want to do, Andrew. I want to I want to talk to people about stuff that is real. And so I was lucky at that engagement because I got to talk to a room full of 300 principals the next day. Yeah. And I told them, I said, I don't want to show a hands, but how many of you know the name of even three of the 20 bus drivers that come to your school every day? And I had a couple of principals say, you've given me some homework. How could that not be important? We're not, the bus drivers don't deliver packages. They deliver people, people who are going to run this country one day. So how could that work not be appreciated? And so that's what I want to do. I want to let people know, I don't care what you did. You know, does, does, the, does the plumber matter? Let the toilet get stopped up just now. <laughs> then he's the most important guy in that school. You're straight on there, Mike. And uh, you hit the mark with those principles there. And when I saw you early in the morning, you had a sweat going, you had a towel around your neck. And I said, wow, this must be Mike Mason, right? And you, and here you are, right? You, you're right. working, you're speaking, you came from California, but you got exercise in. Tell me about the importance of staying fit. You look great. You had great energy. Tell me about that exercise routine of yours. Well, I think the most important thing, I can't be the best me anything. I can't be the best father. I can't be the best uncle. I'm about to be a grandfather. Can't be the best that for as long as I want to be it if I'm not taking care of myself. And I think that taking care of oneself is about prioritization. I've heard people say, I'm too busy. I'm thinking too busy to take care. It'd be like saying I'm too busy to change the oil in my car, but I've got a 5,000 medical mission that I've got to drive on right now, 5,000 mile medical mission, but I can't take care of the thing that's going to get me there. Then I break down halfway there. Yeah. Well, to me, you know, my workout involves aerobics, you know, sit-ups, walking, a uh, little bit of running, not as much as I used to do, uh, a lot of cycling, things like that. But the whole objective is I want to have that energy when I stand in front of an audience. I want to have that energy throughout the the presentation. It's a good sign when my presentation is over. It's only been an hour, but I'm tired because that means I poured myself into it because I think the people sitting in front of me deserve that. I think they're important and they deserve the best I can bring to the table. Well, you did that when I saw you and people were enthused and just your background, the, the, the diversity, your back, the Marines, the FBI, Verizon, like, I mean, so many examples of leadership. Mike, if you had to get up and give a speech on three leadership strategies, right? You only could do three, regardless of where you're working. You could only bring these three as a leader. In your opinion, Mike, what would they be? Well, the first one would be you've got to know your people. You've got to know your people. You want your people to want to work for you, not to have to work to you, but to want to work for you. 
the second thing I this my second biggest principle is that if you ever have to de- if you ever have to declare, you know, I am the boss here, you've already lost the fight. You've already lost the fight. I wanted my people and I and I believe that they did to see me as a teammate. You know, to see us as a law firm and I just happen to be the the lead lawyer or something like that. And then the third thing I'd say is you you got to be good about responding now, responding in the moment. Problems within your within your universe of employees uh, don't just evaporate. They're like a cancer. If they're not treated, they're only going to grow. They're only going to metastasize, uh, to, to stay with that metaphor. Um, the reality is you've got to be somebody who is out and among your people. That was my strength. I mean, Andrew, after all, at Verizon, I supervise people who did jobs that they'll forget more tonight than I ever will learn about their job. I did, I was my job wasn't to be an expert on the job on the work of 2500 people. My job was to get the most out of that unit. So I thought of myself as a conductor, a conductor of a symphony orchestra. My job is not to have to know how to play the trumpet or or the xylophone or a violin. My job is to make sure they all play off the same sheet of music and they all make beautiful music together. And that's the same way I thought of my job as a boss. And if I had to preach three things, it would be those three things because they're all people centric. And that's what bosses are. Bosses to me are less about their functional capabilities than their leadership, organizational, communication, interpersonal. Those are the skills that matter the most then. That's a great response, Mike. I got those here and I'm working on those, but that was a great answer. <laughs> Mike, you're doing some volunteering. You know, what's next for you? What's what's next on your on your list there? Well, for 2023, I want to focus on I haven't really promoted the book at all. It's just been word of mouth. And you know, when I've done the CESA and I done I did the CESA in uh actually it was for California, but the conference was held in Las Vegas. Um, and it, it's been basically word of mouth. Somebody reads it, somebody like you kind enough to do a review on Amazon. Uh, that works. But now I'm thinking about promoting it more. I want to do speaking uh, more, something closer to more full time. But my volunteer work with the Red Cross still remains something very, very important to me. And that's not something I'm going to not do because I'm doing these other things. So when I commit to shifts for a particular month, uh, I just hope I don't get an engagement that bumps up against that shift because I'm still going to do the shift one way or another. Mm-hmm. So, but what I'm going to focus on a little bit more are the things that I wanted to do when I first retired from Verizon. And instead of doing those things, I drove the school bus. Now it's back to what was my original game plan. And it's the book and it's uh, speaking a little bit more. Well, and I would encourage you to do both of those and uh, continue writing because it it was great. I didn't. I felt like we were having a conversation. I felt like I was there with you in your community in Chicago in the Woolworths. I felt like I was working in the store with you. And uh, <laughs> uh, check it out if you're looking for a different type of leadership book, right? A little, a little different, Mike. It was, it was, it was fantastic. Working in America, spectator or gladiator, you decide. And, and we'll try to help you here, Mike, on uh, education, leadership, and beyond promoting that. Uh, but it was. It was really, really good. So uh, let's let's continue to promote that for you. Thank you. I okay. really appreciate that. 
You got it. Mike, let's get to rapid fire here. Um, these are quick questions. You talked about being able to respond. Well, these are quick questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. He's a Marine. Of course he's ready. Uh, last book you read. It was a, a murder mystery. It was called Circle by Anne McCannahy. I think is how you pronounce her name. But Circled is the book. Last movie you saw. Uh, Don't Worry Darling. Didn't love it. But uh, anyway, it was Don't Worry Darling. I thought it was a modern day version of the Stepford Wives. I'm going to go off script a little bit. How true was the uh, Jack Nicholson movie with the code red and all of that? Was it was there some authenticity there with that movie? Which movie was that? Uh, a few good men. You know, you can't handle the truth. The code red with Jack Nicholson, oh. Tom Cruise. Well, obviously they take a lot of liberties, um, <laughs> but but I I did like that movie. I did like that movie. I don't know about the code red though, but I did have a marine who was. Uh, who certainly was pounded once because he wouldn't he wouldn't clean himself. They put a towel over his head and they scrubbed him with a scrub brush. When he came and stood before me, he was red. He looked raw, and uh, I couldn't get anybody to acknowledge it. And you know, I said, "Hey, you live in a you live in a communal platoon where everybody's close by. You gotta you know you gotta keep yourself clean." And at the same time, chewed out the butts of my platoon <laughs> for, for taking that sort of vigilante action. Okay. Uh, uh, that's fair. Uh, favorite dish, Mike? That's a struggle between chicken and prime rib, but I'll settle on prime rib. Uh, you've traveled the world, right? Uh, a lot, lot. You know, favorite place to travel? I'd say any place near water. And that's not a cop out. I don't own a vacation, you know, package because I don't want to go to the same place every year. But I love any place that's near water. I can sit next to the ocean like I can sit in front of a fireplace. It's just so it's such a contemplative environment. I just love it. Yeah. And being in Virginia, right? The beautiful beaches there. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of time in the FBI. The best agents are the best because... Oh, you know, when you asked, when I saw, when you, when you asked that question initially, I thought agent, like book agent or movie agent. I, I think the best agents are hardworking and they're the kind of people who, who do, who do what they do, whether you're looking or you're not looking. They're the kind of people you can count on to go that extra step. You don't have, it, the Marine Corps used to have a saying, put up the flagpole. And there were Marines who had to tell how, did, how deep to dig the hole, sand, gravel, cement, the whole nine yards. Others, you could just say, put up the flagpole. The best agent is a put up the flagpole agent. Wow, I love that. Put up the flagpole. I love it. A journal or a blog you subscribe to? Pardon me? A journal or a blog you subscribe to? Uh, only yours. Nice. Nice. Other than that, none. boxes. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, none right now. Mike, you shared a lot of passions. What's a pet peeve of yours? Something that gets under your skin? Oh, that's an easy one. Inconsiderate people, mm. whether in traffic, in store lines, in restaurants, just inconsiderate, rude people, unkind people. Eight a.m. on Saturday morning. I feel fill in the blank. Uh, ready to take on the world because I've never awakened it. I've never arisen at 8 a.m. By then, I'm up three hours already, but ready to take on the world. I love it. Best purchase under $100 that has had a great impact on your life? I would say, I, I would say um, a book I just recently read, Imagine Heaven. I've been working on 
my relationship with God since a nun told me that she didn't want any more questions from me because I was challenging the concept of God. And she said, that's a sin and I don't want any more questions. It would have been easier if she had said, honey, I don't know the answer to your question, but I've been on a 54 year quest to, to sort of find God and define it for me. And the book I read, Imagine Heaven, is as close as I've come to that. It talked about all of these near-death experiences and people floating up into a room and watching people work on them. Well, Andrew, when I was 19, I was a respiratory therapy tech. I did uh, CPR on a lady uh, one night. We revived her, but she never regained consciousness in the ER. The next day, she was fine. I was giving her a breathing treatment. She grabbed me and she said, honey, I need to tell you something. And I said, what? She said, I know you were one of the people working on me last night. I saw you working on me and um, I needed to tell you if I could have stopped all of you, I would have stopped you. And she said, and I don't want to die. But where I was was so fantastic. It was so beautiful. Well, Andrew, I'm 19 years old. I don't have a lot of sophistication. I'm just thinking, how do I get the hell out of here? When I read Imagine Heaven, I read a, a uh, an episode and there were many episodes just like that lady around 250 pages I'm reading and tears start coming down my eyes. Mm -hmm. I, I, can, I can lose it if I start talking too slowly about it now, but tears start rolling down my eyes. I said, that's what that lady was telling me. Wow. And that lady never regained consciousness. There's no way she should have known I was one of the people working on her. Um, so that book, which was about $19. Yep. And it still has an impact on me. It's still bringing me closer to the goal line of, you know, there is a God and that's something I'm working on. That's beautiful, Mike. Uh, hard to transition from that, but being from the Chicago area, deep dish pizza, is it the real deal or what? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and people who say, well, I bought one of those in the store, man, you bought a frozen one. I don't want to hear your story. If you go to Chicago, no better place. I'm a fight for Chicago pizza like those in Texas fight for ribs, you know, <laughs> barbecue. Knife and fork? Pardon me? Knife and fork with oh, the yeah. pizza? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll be all in your lap. We learned a lot about you today. Two words to describe yourself. I would say um, compassionate. Hmm. Compassionate and uh, that's one and uh, focused. I love it. One thing you're curious about. God. Yeah. Very, very curious about God. Just the, between science and, and theology. You know, I, I read the entire Bible in 2009. It was called the Chronological Bible. Wow. You read so many pages every day, and by the end of the year, you've read the whole thing. And um, again, the book Imagine Heaven has brought me closer than anything else I've read. Well, we're going to send you a gift uh, from a recent leader on here. I'll send you the show, too. But he wrote a book, uh, uh, you know, 40-Day Devotion for Leaders. So we, we, okay. we'll get to that. Uh, Mike, something about Mike Mason that people don't know about. Well, I've done uh, CPR probably on more than 30 people, most of that in the hospital environment, but I did perform it once on a, on a man on the Metro who unfortunately died. Mm. But I, and then in performing that on probably 30 people across my two years at the hospital, 
probably only revive about seven, even in hospital conditions. So when you hear about somebody performing CPR in a restaurant and they revive somebody, boy, they're in rarefied air. Wow. But that's something most people don't know I've done. Mike, if uh, people want to get in touch with you about your speaking, uh, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, the best way would be to either uh, text me. I'm, my number is 703-579-7277 or to email me at masonm9704 at yahoo.com. One more time. Give that cell number again. It's 703-579-7277. And I recommend if you're looking for a speaker, you're looking for someone uh, with a different experience, especially if you're in education, Mike, I, I would highly recommend you. You, uh, uh, you bring some really strong values to your audience. And again, check out Mike's book there, Working in America. Mike, you have a quote you want to end this with? Well, I don't know if I have a quote, but I did want to say for educators, as I think I told you, you know, my sister was a teacher. My brother is a teacher. And in fact, some of the most influential people in my life were teachers. And so teachers are really my heroes. When I get to stand in front of a room full of teachers, it feels easy. It, it, it actually feels easy. I don't feel nervous. Uh, I feel the only nerves I feel is because I want to do a good job but I have so many good things to say. And I think what teachers do, what you do as a principal, I think it is so important. I think education is the very foundation of our democracy. Uh, the, the more we can do to make sure that education is equally dispensed across all groups, the better this country will be. So I am a lover of education and a lover of teachers. Well, I'm a lover of your message, Mike. This is great. This is Mike Mason, guys. Reach out to him. Uh, he gave his cell number here and his book, Working in America. Mike, we're going to sign off here on show 226. Uh, you hang tight. I really appreciate your message and certainly making some time for today, Mike. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Here we go, folks. Show number 226. If I can help you in any way, don't hesitate to reach out at Andrew Murata. 21 on Twitter. Keep rolling, friends. Keep surviving and thriving.